This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Dr. Jones. In this special episode, we hear from Matrion Twin, Sally Bamford, and Callan Terry as we discuss Nagalon King and unpack how we know what we know in Southeast Asian Studies. Welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. This is one of the special Burma Conference Editions, and uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and we have a couple special guests on our panel, and I'll introduce them and then have them tell us a little about who they are, and then we'll uh, jump right in. Um, to your right is Sally Bamford, hello. and I'll say hello, and uh, Matriarch Twin, Hi. and Callan Terry. Hello. Uh, you want to all want to introduce yourselves uh, a bit about where you're from, what sure. you're up to? Uh, I'm Sally Bamford. I'm a PhD uh, candidate at the Australian National University in uh, Canberra in Australia. Uh, I first went to Burma in 1991 and uh, was as a backpacker, uh, knew nothing about the country, knew nothing about anything really and uh, loved the place, uh, really enjoyed my time there and uh, when I came to study art history, uh, because Burma was a largely uncharted water in that respect, um, it became a, a fairly logical and easy topic, I guess, for me to start to research. But uh, it, it, I, my research is on uh, the Nat images of Myanmar. I'm, I'm researching their development as um, art objects. And uh, it was really kicked off by the present. Uh, I had my birthday in Burma in that first trip and the, the fellow I was travelling with uh, bought me a puppet uh, and I didn't know what the puppet was and then it turned out to be um, an image of Thajami, who is the, the, um, the head of the Nats, if you like. And uh, that kind of sparked my interest and now many, many, many years later I'm now about to finish my PhD. Okay, thanks. Great. Uh, my name is Maitriang Thuyen and I... I'm a faculty member of the National University of Singapore um, in the Department of History and also um, a convener of their Comparative Asian Studies PhD program. But uh, what's wonderful about being here today is that I'm also an alum of Northern Illinois University. Go Huskies! Yeah, go Huskies! And um, so it's a, it's a wonderful time to, to be back in DeKalb but also to share uh, a bit about our common interests in Southeast Asia. Yeah, thanks Maitri. Uh, my name is Callan Terry. I completed my undergraduate uh, this past May at Hanover College, and I am just starting my master's degree here at NIU um, in Cambodian history. And I completed reading Maitri's book about a month ago. Yeah, which is a good segue, because uh, one of the things we're uh, going to talk about is is uh, his book, uh, and especially the really the methodologically the the approach of the book. Um, so the the subject in question is uh, the return of the Galon King. Uh, the the subtitle is is uh, what's what's the rest of the title, Maitri? History, law, and rebellion in colonial Burma. Yes, and it's done on purpose because the book is actually structured that way. Um, <laughs> the first part is the history. Actually, maybe it's, yeah. The first part is the history. Then it's the law, and then it's the notions of rebellion. So I was given a good tip by an Indonesian historian. Uh, by the name of Merle Rickliffs, and uh, oh, yeah. he said, a good title, my tree, should tell you everything about the book, the structure and so on, and so I did my best to try to infuse a little bit of that information into the, into the title, and I mean, The Return of the Galone King actually is not only um, about the um, ways in which a rebellion uh, and a rebel um, re um, it, created a rebellion to, to fight against the British, but it's also about the story and how it returned um, from over the, over, over the, over time by I didn't scholars. catch that double pun in the there, uh, title. No one knows it. Actually, yeah. I didn't even write about it actually either. <laughs> but yeah, so the idea of the double pun is the return is also um, a comment on uh, the ways in which this story was reinvented each Another time. Another Southeast Asia Crossroads exclusive. <laughs> by colonial scholars, by historians, by area study specialists. And so the return is both historiographical as well as, as dealing with sort of the history. Right. And so, so uh, obviously a big character in your book is, is Sayasan. And for those who work on Southeast Asia, he's really like a huge figure, uh, looms large in uh, in the 
in the historical imagination, and especially in Burma. But tell us in a nutshell, who, who is Sayasan for our listenership? Okay. Um, the rebellion, it was a rebellion that occurred in 1930, 1932, actually 1934. Um, but it's, it's the name Sayasan was associated with the, rebe- with the rebellion afterwards, um, uh, to denote his, the leader or the supposed leader of this rebellion, use him. Um, so this, this, these are these are Burmese rebelling against British rule, right? And in, during the colonial period, and the, the standard narrative about it is that Sayasan was this peasant leader um, who imagined himself to be the returning king of Myanmar, which or Burma, um, because the monarchy had been had been dismantled in 1886. And so there was this sense that there was this longing and nostalgia of loss, you know, that the that the Burmese uh, had always fa- uh, had always thought and fantasized that a, a future king would come back, like King Arthur. And there had been um, this a recurring sort of idea that you had these folks who would claim that they are the returning king, and Sayasan was considered to be one of them. And in the southern part of uh, the lower part of Lower Burma. Uh, during the 1930s, he had a bunch of followers um, gathered uh, around the mountains um, called the Pagu uh, Yoma. And there at the mountaintop, he, he held a coronation ceremony, declared himself king, and urged his followers to um, rebel against the, the British. And what's interesting, of course, is that there was he promised them as king that he would protect them by having tattoos um, against bullets. Um, and to take elf water and so forth um, in order to um, indicate their allegiance not only to him but also to this broader cause of restoring both the monarchy and Buddhism. And so this he became a very important figure um, in the 1930s and later on uh, as well. As he, he started, would would yeah. it be fair to call it a show trial that went on, that the, the prosecution of the of the mm. rebellions around. Well, he was I guess, he led the rebellion. Uh, he was ale- allegedly read, led the rebellion. He was eventually caught in 1931 um, and put on trial, and um, shortly afterwards found guilty. Um, even, and after an appeal, he was sentenced to death a few months later. Um, the rebellion continued on well into 1934, and folks were still being put in prison and shipped being shipped off to um, the Andaman Islands. Um, well into 1935, and some were still being freed much later in 1937. Now, my book actually explores the story of how do we know this narrative um, that uh, folks like Kaylin are reading in, you know, in, in, in classrooms now, and I um, basically tell well, the story. And, 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 yeah. and we might add that like this is um, extensively talked about in literature ever since then as one of the kind of the, you know, the kind of Quintessential rebellion moments you know in Southeast yeah. Asian history, uh, right? And and so uh, uh, it's it, probably one of the reasons why it, it's you, that you bring it up because it's 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 a it's touchstone for everyone. It served as a subject. I mean, the rebellion rebellion in general was a very important topic for Southeast right. Asianists mm-hmm. uh, to understand Southeast Asia. Uh, one of the major themes to understand it was rebellion. And this is, of course, happening at a time when, in many ways, there are rebellions going on in the, 19, in the 1960s, and, uh, and after, um, especially during the Cold War, um, rebellions and, and civil wars especially. And so a lot of interest was in finding out, well, what, what's happening? What's happening to Southeast Asians? And so people started looking back. So are you, are you telling me that the present informs the way that we study the past? Is that what you're, <laughs> is that what you're trying? We're not <laughs> yeah, well, and, uh, and so, so classic works, you know, yeah. like... Jim Scott's Moral Economy of the Peasant. He was using the Sayasan Rebellion as mm-hmm. a case study. Classic works like Prophets of Rebellion by Michael Addis, the famous world historian. He, he began his, his work in Burma, uh, doing work on Burma with the Burma Delta, um, which also talks about the Sayasan Rebellion as a response to the economic uh, depression and so forth that the, that the Burmese were feeling. So it becomes, it's an event that's associated with a lot of different topics about Southeast Asia, uh, economic history, um, but also cultural history, and this is um, where we start to think about peasants having um, or be, being the representatives of an authentic Southeast Asian culture. And so we start looking to peasant societies in order to try to uncover and reclaim and and rediscover in many ways the quintessential what is Southeast Asia. And so here's somebody who's authentically Burmese right. who's trying to 
go back to an authentic Burma, and we we he's a he's a he's un smattered by the wet by Western trappings, and by he's going back to a golden age, and this is uh, kind of a noble. 1960s dream. <laughs> yeah, and, and this this was interesting for 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 Southeast Asianists because um, they saw this as uh, a throwback to an authentic version or an interpretation of how Southeast Asians understood colonialism. Um, so they saw this whole motif of a, a returning king uh, who would restore Buddhism and so forth as the lens through which they could understand the changes that were happening to them at a very disruptive time, the, the, the depression. And so this became an alternative to the types of interpretations that had been uh, made by the, the, the British. You know, they're saying, you know, these guys are just superstitious folks. You know, they're believing that these tattoos are going to preserve their, you know, their bodies, you know, that, that they can do some incantations and, and, and stamp on, this, on the, the shadow of a plane. It'll come crashing down. I mean, these sorts of things. Um, but what, as, as scholars of the working in the 1990s, we started realizing that these types of images of Asia um, by these colonial scholar officials were very interesting because they projected a certain imagination of what Asians were. And so this was also so, sort of the influence that I had on me to, so, to go reach back and ask, how do we know what we know about this rebellion? So it had a, it had a function in, the, in, in post-war scholarship, especially 60s, 70s, uh, and, and beyond for, for people who are looking for a, an authentic Southeast Asia or an autonomous history of Southeast mm-hmm. Asia. What, tell us what function did it have at the at the time for of of the rebellion itself, uh, yes. 1930s Burma, like what, what um, how and 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 the origins of that. What was interesting was at the time it depended on who you ask. Just like today, I mean, if you want to ask about what does Don San Suu Kyi mean to you, it depends on who you ask. You know, if you're asking somebody yeah. in Yangon, they're going to say certain things, and if you ask someone you know, maybe in the countryside, um, maybe maybe something else. Well, for the same sort of thing, if you asked. Most educated, you know, Burmese who were probably also minorities at the time, um, they would have probably thought that this Sayasan rebellion and Sayasan in, in the thirties, in the nineteen thirties, yeah. were a bunch of crazy maniacs, you know, mm-hmm. um, running around. I, in fact, I did ask my grand, my grand uncle and some of my older <laughs> relatives um, who were alive in their nineties at the back you know, twenty years ago. I said, "What do you think about Sayasan?" They thought, "Oh, he's a, an idiot." In fact, your uncle, your, your <laughs> uncle actually was a policeman, and he actually put, was one trying to suppress the rebellion. Uh-huh. This is what happened. So my relatives were minorities who were very much aligned with the sort of British uh, worldview and so on. But if you ask nationalists, um, they were saying, this, this is uh, a peasant who is um, very much fighting for us. You know, they may be misled. You know, they may um, be slightly embarrassing because they're running around with tattoos and so on, but they're still fighting for a common cause. And so people saw him as this uneducated but, but still, um, still inspirational type of, of, of leader. Now, um, later on, though, of course, we, we, we start realizing, though, that perhaps he wasn't this peasant that we thought he was. He might have actually been an educated elite. Um, and that yep. hasn't been really written in the book either, but uh, that's, that's for the next one. Because the guy, the story about him is really unclear. The sources are unclear. I think there's a, the peasant side of him, I think, um, and this is uh, cutting-edge uh, scoop stuff, mm-hmm. I, I think it was created in the 1960s under the BSPP, the Socialist Party uh, program uh, that run, ran Burma between 62 and, and 1988. Right, they're kind of ideal, ideal peasants. Yes, uh, yeah, and, and they, wow. I think, infused the, the, his, the story about him being a peasant and poor and so on. And the reason why I, I question this is because there is that story where he's a peasant, but then, we, uh, then uh, he moves down after from Shwebo, which is in Upper Myanmar, he comes down, and suddenly he's leading a commission to look into uh, abuses uh, in the countryside uh, during agricult- in the agricultural sector, working for the GCBA. Right, he's, he's working for this nationalist group. Like, how does this, 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 this woodcutter suddenly have all the political tools and language to engage in this type of grassroots organization? It's raising some questions, and, and maybe someone else will take the, take the cue and, and, and actually go into the sources about who this guy really was. So it's really a lot of questions still that my book doesn't even answer.
So how tell us? So take us on a bit of a, a bit of the journey. So um, your your reading sources on uh, from like colonial Burma. Um, when do you when does things start to not make sense? And where do you go to find answers? Okay, so let me take you back on the story, which is actually what I wrote the book for, um, was really to have students think about, well, how is history made? And so when I started reading this, when I was writing this book, it was actually, I was just telling it almost as an autobiography of how I sort of stumbled on it. And essentially, I wasn't even interested in Seyasan when I first came to this. What I was interested in was his lawyer, because I was taking a class on scholar officials and people of mixed backgrounds and I wanted to focus on this figure called um, Bamal. Now Bamal was, um, uh, he was the premier under the Japanese but he was a noted lawyer and he had, he was the, the one of the def- defendants, or sorry not defendants, one of the defense lawyers in Seyasan's trial. That was, everyone knew that, right? But what I was interested in was like how did this anglicized Burmese guy defend a traditional Burmese, authentic Burmese, right? And this is the question uh-huh. I had as a grad student. It was, of course, informed about my own, my own anxieties about my own identity in many ways, you know, because I was like, this is an anglicized Burmese. Did he feel uncomfortable? Did he feel like he's a sellout, you know, to this authentic <laughs> Burmese guy, right? So I was like, yeah. and how would I find that? I'd have to look at his trial records and find out how did he defend this guy? So I said, okay, well, we need to find the trial records. So I looked in all the histories that had ever been written by uh, Ansei Asan, including major works written by famous historians and and political scientists like James Scott and Michael Addis and so on, and no one had ever referred to the legal sources. So that's when I started saying, hey, this is kind of interesting. But then I said, but they all refer to this official Blue Book report. A Blue Book report is an official report that happens after an event. It sort of gives final administrative closure. Everybody focused that on that report as the, the basis of every subsequent history. Then I, but then I looked at it, I said, well, wait a minute. Inside, you have all these passages from other documents that preceded this report, and they were the legal, doc, they were legal passages. So that suddenly re, uh, revealed to me that that primary source that we had been treating as the foundation for everything we knew about the Seasan Rebellion was not very primary, that there were sources that had preceded it. So I said, okay, I'm no longer interested in the lawyer. I'm interested in how did we make this mistake? And, and, how, and where is this, where, how did this story come to be? And so from then on, I took it back. I started working backwards as far as I could. And I took it back to the um, judgments that which passages were taken from the judgments into this official report. I looked back for the trial records to find out how those passages ended up uh, there and I found out, that, for instance, there was legislation that said only certain types of passages could be put into the judgments, uh-huh. and said, "Whoa, where, what's this legislation?" It was special emergency <laughs> legislation um, that was enacted in order to deal with the rebellion. And so then I said, "Well, where are they getting their? How did they act, enact this le- legislation?" Well, they started using ethnographies of how do Burmese peasants act, and many of the ways in which they act was that they often rebel and rise up from time to time because they're restless, they're gullible, they're and bored. The, so these are full of tropes of the mind of the Burmese. Right. So and, and so. So, this yeah. is, so I realized there was a connection between these old colonial ethnographers who had first gone over to uh-huh. uh, Burma um, and then the legalization of those ethnographies became the basis for what we know about the Seosan Rebellion. Fast forward 70 years, then we have area studies scholars trying to find the quintessential Southeast Asia. But what they're really writing about are the legal productions, the legal the images of, the, yeah. uh, of, of, these, of these rebels. So that was essentially the story. And the fundamentally asks and raises the questions is, do we really know and understand Southeast Asian rebellion in the case of Seasan? And how do we even know and understand what is Southeast Asia as a field? Is was was some of the implications of what I was trying to suggest based on this particular history of a story. So, um, Sally, maybe I can ask you to jump in here real quick. I I should say her 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 essay won the uh, Sarah Becker Prize. So, congratulations to that. And um, it very much uh, correlates with uh, with some of Matry's observations. So, give us give us a give us a, uh, a taste of of what you're looking at. 
Sure. Uh, anyone who is researching uh, the Nats in, in Myanmar um, invariably starts and often finishes with uh, Sir Richard Karnak Temple's tell us, book. Tell us what, who and what the Nats are. Um, the Nats are, uh, put very simply, they're uh, a spirit. Um, they come in various shapes and sizes and different hierarchies of the Buddhist cosmos, but essentially uh, there are the Daewa Nats who live in the higher heavens and are generally benevolent. And then there are uh, a lower form of earthbound spirit uh, who have the potential to cause harm. So people make offerings to them so that they won't cause harm. For instance, a farmer will make an offering to the gnat or the spirit of his field in order that his crop will be productive. Uh, okay. it, it, it's, it's that kind of quid pro quo uh, type sure. of thing going on. Um, so Richard Karnak Temple was the British officer, uh, colonial officer, who was put in charge of Mandalay after um, the last king was sent into exile. And he was one of those sort of outstanding British colonial civil servants who had a real passion for the country that he was living and working in. And one of the things that he got really interested in was Burma's gnats. And he'd heard a lot about a pantheon of gnats called... Um, the 37 Nats, and that uh, became the title of the book that he wrote about them. But uh, what he was actually writing about was a one discrete pantheon created uh, at a certain time, um, at a certain place and for a certain function. But he didn't really know this history. He, What he learned... Um, is hard to trace because he does uh, list his sources but a lot of them are no longer to be found. Uh, he had uh, some illustrated documents and aside from that all his information was vernacular and it largely came from other Westerners. So the view of the Nats that has um, been around for a long time is very much seen through uh, a Western filter, if you like. And, and has, th has that been a popular... His, his He's cited in everything. Uh, you cannot pick up right. a book on the Nats uh, and without coming across Temple. He, for a long time, he has been really the only voice uh, in, in, the, in the dialogue. Uh, despite the fact that the Burmese themselves have been writing about the Nats <laughs> since at least 1937, uh, when Upo Cha... Uh, who was a noted historian and an author, and he was actually head of the national schools, I think, um, in, uh, in in Burma at that time. He wrote a book about the Nats, which goes into a hell of a lot more detail. But for some reason, uh, Western scholars have just never addressed the Burmese sources. Everyone has just looked to Temple, uh, and that's probably largely because of the you know the language, uh, the language issue. But um, nevertheless, when you start uh, going back through Temple sources, as uh, as uh, uh, Marjorie has done, you know, with Sayasan, you find documents in British colonial archives that were around when Temple was around, but he chose to ignore them, or he forgot about them. Um, it's not really clear, you know, what happened. Certainly, a selective use. Selective <laughs> use, absolutely. And so, when you come across these things, you discover that a lot of what Temple had to say is actually riddled with errors, and some of them are, are really basic things like um, transcribing a Burmese word incorrectly. But these sort of errors have come down, uh, have just been passed down because Temple has been the perceived um, wisdom that's become received. And so wisdom. this is a civil servant kind of kind yeah. of scholar. Yeah. Uh, yeah, who didn't you know? He he wasn't working in the in the in the modern academic tradition where you footnote your sources yeah. and you, you know, you have your bibliography at the end. He just had a whole lot of scraps of paper with names on them, uh, and you know the the Nats. Um, one of the enchanting things about them is that they have these fabulous creation legends, uh, which are full of you know daring deeds and drunken behaviour, and it's awfully colourful, uh, it's, and it's fabulous stuff to read. And he, I think he, you know, he like myself got quite enchanted with all of this but it's only very much um, uh, a veneer a surface view of of, of, uh, of the Nats themselves and, and how they've developed and what their purpose was uh, in, in Myanmar history I, I loved uh, you, you discussing a little bit about uh, kind of how this all dawned on you? Oh, yes. Um, when I started my PhD, I could speak uh, a bit of Burmese, but um, I was only just starting to learn the script. And at the beginning, I found uh, a document in the archives, one of the archives in England, and had it sent out to me. And it sat there, 15 pages of A4 uh, Burmese writing, and tantalised me for a couple of years uh, while I got to grips with the script. And I actually put it aside because it was one of those incredibly frustrating things. 
And after a couple of years of um, – or about 18 months of sort of learning the script and, and uh, getting to grips with the language and, and all the other research I was doing, I pulled it out and looked at it and realised that uh, I could actually read it and I could actually understand it. And that's when it, it the, the, there was really this blinding revelation that Temple had got it all wrong. <laughs> so a lot of what I'd, uh, you know, been working with, um, all of a sudden, you know, this new layer was revealed and it was really one of those eureka moments um, – I, uh, I texted my uh, thesis supervisor and I said, you know, Richard Temple was an old fraud. He really was. <laughs> so it's, um, it is amazing when you do go back to the sources. Uh, um, that's where everyone should be starting, not finishing. So, Cal, let me maybe ask you. So as a, as a graduate student starting out, is this, uh, is this encouraging? Is this terrifying that... Uh, <laughs> Everything, everything in the in those uh, sacred texts might, in fact, be um, not as it seems. Or what's what's what is the impression? Um, it's a mixture of both, actually. <laughs> um, it's a little horrifying that everything is so ethnocentric. There's a lot of uh, cultural ignorance when it comes to uh, doing the research, especially afterwards, not looking at the primary sources. Um, but it's. It's encouraging, I guess, because we can come up with some original research um, by looking back at these documents, especially if you have the language learning um, to really read it for what it is. And um, I think the new, fo the larger focus that I've heard a lot of people talking about with really paying attention to who's writing what is really helpful to analyze these documents now. Um, but it is it is pretty horrifying to um, <laughs> so we had someone in the course actually who has studied the Galon King uh, story before, and he was blown away um, when he read this book that Maitri wrote because he had never he had never read anything like it about this event. Um, he he had, he had you know he had he'd been living in Burma and you know um, and maybe you can speak about like kind of his his mythology like right now mm. in in Burma and so like but but the it's not just Western scholars who are misappropriating um, the the Sayasan. it's 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 it, he's been adapted for Myanmar purposes as well and so uh, yeah he was taken aback. <laughs> I think that the only place in the world where my book will be blown away is back here at NIU. <laughs> <laughs> It's so wonderful to hear this that. This podcast will change that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, part of the story that we didn't actually talk about, though, was about the trial of Sayasan and what had happened. And what it showed was that the facts that were the basis of the narrative were, were really flimsy. And so the whole evidentiary foundation uh, for the story that we understand to be the, uh, the basis of the history um, is really on shaky ground. So we, we're not quite sure what we should do for this. But well, for... Uh, go ahead. Yeah, Kellen. Sorry, I was going to say, yeah. it sounds like it was really redacted as well, mm. what actually got into the... Indeed. Um, so the, 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 the bits that were redacted, you really want to find them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the whole thing, and that even in the, in the judgments themselves, the defense record was not included. And so that already shows the biggest flaw there, that all you're hearing is the prosecution side of the story. So we are basing what we know about Southeast Asian rebellions about their of, of, of using a traditional culture to understand the changes that are a going on in kangaroo the world court. through a kangaroo <laughs> court uh, system here. And so there were a lot redacted. I mean, that alone is um, should be exciting for, for history students because Sally, does that offend you as an Australian if I say kangaroo court? Are you okay with that? Uh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, okay, no all right. Problem. Just make sure. But, uh, yeah, but your original point, you know, about, well, you know, it's not just, you know, the British that are doing this. They're, they're, these were stories were important for... Burmese nationalists as well. They wanted him to be um, an important figure of, of showing a very popular movement against the, the nationalists that could, that could coincide with the urban elites who were, had different types of ways of articulating... Standing up to the West. ...who they were, right. And even in the museums. If you go to the National Museum, not actually the National Museum um, in, Yang, in Yangon um, or the, one, the new one in uh, Naypyidaw, but if you go to the military um, uh, museum, which actually has the sort of history of the nation in it, um, Seasan's not included in the the exhibit um, as part of the the mainstream narrative. He has a separate exhibit, sort of even physically outside of the main story. Um, they say, well, he's there, but he's not even he's not with the GCBA, which is the General Council for Burmese Association, which was the main national party. He's not um, the part of the um, 
the Thakins, who were seen as being the sort of founding fathers, you know, of the country. He's seen as being a sort of throwback, well, well respected, but even in terms of his representation in a in a museum, he's seen as being sort of outside. So for the Burmese, they saw him as being part of the story, but more of uh, a side story. But that started to change. Um, um, uh, moving, moving through the different decades, because people wanted, remembered him in different ways to suit uh, what they needed at the time. So after the um, civilian government was overthrown by a military government in 1962, they started talking about the needs to sort of raise up the place of peasants and so forth. And so Seasan was seen as being um, a very important peasant leader. And so they, they accentuated that aspect of his life. But of course, they used the same narrative that the British had constructed in those courts. And I think it, another thing about your book is that it's not just, um, it's not just an, like a, an evaluation of an event, but talking about how you write history, um, it was a really good introduction for our course as far as readings go because it made us question everything we read. Um, yeah, thanks for the cynicism, my tree. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, looking at primary sources in a more critical light, um, because a lot of people talk about bias in in primary sources and how you need to be aware of them, but no one tells you really why. No mm. one tells you how much it really affects a, a historical record of an event. And, yeah, and I th- and I think. Um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm I also have a bit of a bias. I work like Maitri does with with a lot of legal hi- documents, legal history. And when you know you get you find things, and you're constantly asking yourself, like especially if you work with stuff that that deals with criminal interrogations or trials, or like I work a lot with like confessions extracted under torture, and you have to ask yourself like. Um, what does this mean? You know, what what can what do I do with something that I have one version th- before the thumbscrews are put on that that differs quite uh, radically from from the after and and uh, I think one thing that 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 your works help helps people maybe to do is to say that look um, we need to stop trying to think like ooh, the, the 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 objective historical. Truth. We're not trying to re-litigate the Sayasan Rebellion. We got to. We really started asking ourselves: What use was it for the British to 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 to, um, uh, to display the trial in this way? What use is it for uh, each sub- subsequent generation? What use is it for uh, the interrogators to have? Uh, that confession extracted in a certain way, and and so um, you have to look for the agenda. Yeah, and so and so in sudden and and because 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 the I fear the um, one response to say, well, this is all tainted, uh, uh, you know, uh, t- colonial handmaiden. Um, I'm uh, let's let's baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all rubbish. Uh, but if we start looking at it as if we believe that bias is something that just is inherently always already present then it then we can uh, approach it with our critical eye I, I really wrote it for graduate students not only so that they could get a sense of looking at the methodology of how a history is written I really wanted the students to also think about or the readers to think about well once you've discovered that there's a problem in a narrative then what do you do about it and how do you engage it I didn't want to, and this, to the credit of my advisors, said try to find a way to engage the different interpretations. I didn't want, just want to say that, you know, 70, 70 years of scholarship are just wrong. Um, therefore, you should hire me for a job. <laughs> uh, but in fact, I wanted instead to engage and say, why were they writing in the way they did? Uh, why did they respond to the, the rebellion in this way? Over the generations of, of various studies, a, a discursive approach, right? Is, yeah. And that, as as a an approach to doing scholarship, can you engage the people you disagree with? You know, can you find something um, in their work that's that's worth holding on to, to give them the credit, and also think about what were they thinking as scholars at the time, which has influenced the way they looked at things. So this was also a, hopefully a lesson. And now to really give you the, sort of the the hot news off the. Ooh. The Flash. I discovered in the last year that there was a film made of the trial. What? I had. I saw nothing in the official records about this until I started getting hints from like live footage. Live footage of the entire oh, trial. Oh. Um, the British apparently had filmed it with the idea 
that if they film it and circulate it around the country, it would reinforce their rule, it would reinforce their the sense of security and so forth. And of course, it had absolutely Let me the opposite. Guess. <laughs> and so, so when I saw that, I just said, "Oh, this has got to be this is this is absolutely amazing." So the, right now, the 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 task is to try to find this film. So I've been started getting into the history of cinema and so forth to find out. Not that I'm interested in history of cinema as much, but I'm trying to find out who were the major companies at the time. Um, all indications suggest that the the company that was connected to it called A1, um, their warehouse was bombed, and so the film doesn't exist. But I, I can't believe that because I think the film had to be circulated across the empire. Its pedagogical purpose was too broad for it to be. You know, and, and right, and so it might be in a, in a warehouse in in Delhi. <laughs> You know, it could be in all these other sort of colonial centers, you know. Um, so that's that's going to be an interesting aspect. Matri's offering a cash prize for the first person to find the... Uh, <laughs> this lost film of this yeah. trial. Yeah. Um, all colonial libraries. Right, yeah. right. And so that's there's there's more to the story, um, I think. Um, my yeah. a, a colleague suggested you can't spend a lifetime on this topic, Maitri, but I think <laughs> you can spend a, a few years on it at least. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask, so have you had, were there any awkward um, encounters with uh, some of the scholars who uh, you, you've, you've put into question their interpretations? I think um, this is to credit of the Burma Studies Group. Um, it has really its foundations here with the Center for Burma Studies at NIU. We're a very small group, but we're a, a close group. And, all I mean, this and you're not attacking anyone at all. Yeah, it's not I like mean, the main, the main scholar whose work... Um, should have uncovered this this material um, was Patricia Herbert, and she was writing uh, and already questioning the narratives that were associated with Seasan as being this you know traditional peasant. She said back in 1982 that, from all indications, she he was part of this broader grassroots movement that was going around the country called the Wuntanu Athin, um, and basically they were sort of defenders of our race, defenders of our of our culture and so forth. They, became, they created militias, actually, um, to defend that uh, the culture against tax collectors and other Burmese who they saw as being collaborators. She started to question it already, but she didn't have a chance to finish her, her dissertation. I, and she was going to end with the trial. Um, and I started with, the, in a sense, the trial right. and saw it. When I first gave the presentation back in 1996 or 1997, uh, here at NIU at the first... Burma Studies Conference that I attended, I, I put on a suit. I thought that was really important. And <laughs> Jim Scott was there, Patricia Herbert was there, mm. and I, and the presentation that I gave was as if I were a defense lawyer, and I p took that personification. And the panel was going to be the judges, and so I sort of reenacted it. Um, it's the trial of science, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and they were very, they were so supportive. Does footage exist of this trial? It'd be kind of embarrassing because I was rather. Slimmer at the time, <laughs> but they they were really they were really supportive, um, um, because Seasan doesn't, at least amongst the scholars, doesn't have sort of this emotional, uh, con uh, it doesn't evoke an emotional connection with it, with with these scholars because they moved on from it, they moved on to develop bigger things. For other scholars, it might have rubbed them the wrong way, but even you know Michael Addis, who who wrote several stuff on on the rebellion and so forth, he was very supportive. He wrote to me and said, "No, nah, I don't have the notes. I don't know where the where this diary is." Because that was part of the story was trying to find right. not just a film of the trial, but also Seasan's supposed diary, which was the key piece of evidence upon which everything we know about the guy uh, rested. And so no one's really seen that. As I've asked everybody, "Did you guys actually <laughs> see the 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 diary?" And they go, "Well." Uh, Knows that what we saw in the newspapers, you know, and so forth. So this is a key sort of issue. So to answer your question, um, scholarship, the Burma scholars and so forth um, have been very supportive. And that's the type of thing we need, you know, more of, you know, is to really encourage the sure. folks. So I think Callan is going to later on going to come around and, <laughs> and say, no, Ang Thuan, you're, you're actually quite wrong about this. <laughs> because I found the film. <laughs> Dismantle the dismantler. Right. Yeah. We can duke it out then. <laughs> yeah. Right, uh, right. You can make a name for yourself having a famous fight publicly, and you know, in <laughs> pages of a journal. Yeah. Um, so uh, maybe shift to, to a bit, Maitri. You, you've been thinking lately. I have too about ways of of doing um, 
research in Southeast Asia, writing about Southeast Asia that are um, above the nation but still include uh, the nation. Uh, can you tell us about your ideas about community and its role in writing history? Thanks, Eric. It's, it came out of my teaching. Usually we do our research and it sort of influences your teaching. It came the other way around. I was trying to put together a history of Southeast Asia for, for Southeast Asians, for my students in, at NUS, at National University of Singapore. And I, I was really struggling with, you know, how do we talk about the history of the region from earliest times to the present? The way it had been constructed was essentially you had these early polities and they started uh, developing, got more complex, and eventually led to the nation. And now, of course, ASEAN. And it, it seemed to be... It's just teleological. Every moment in history yeah. leading up to 1945. Everything and, was yeah. successive. Everything yeah. built upon each other. And, and that each period was you know, very different from before without any sort of continuity, without, um, without any sort of these long-term... Um, um, processes and links. Now, to be fair, a lot of scholars have proposed um, wonderful uh, ways of thinking about it. One issue that still struck my mind, though, was the problem of the nation. In common historiography, whether it's about you know Southeast Asia or Myanmar or elsewhere, the nation is a, it seems to be a problem. We want to move a, away from it, um, people have been suggesting. Um, transnational studies especially have pushed that more recently. But area studies really in the 1960s was really transnational from the get-go. We were talking about Southeast Asia, a common Southeast Asian experience being influenced by Indianization, by Sinicization and Islamization and so forth. Um, I wanted to somehow bring that type of spirit um, into a history. And so I started coming up with this idea of looking at community formation as a process through which we could look at the entire history of the region. Now, this wasn't originally an idea at all. I mean, uh, there was a, a geographer, um, Pete Gosling, in Michigan, where I did my studies. He wasn't um, teaching at the time. He had already almost retired. I knew him as an uncle, <laughs> you know, as a five-year-old. Uh, being in Ann Arbor at the time, as my dad was there um, as a grad student. But I happened to be interested in how did people think about Southeast Asia? How did they teach it? And I happened to be looking through the old syllabi of courses in the 1970s. And I saw community in Southeast Asia. And I thought, that's it, right there. So I thought, how, what did that mean? Because it didn't really go on beyond that. So I had to sort yeah. of figure out what, what did community mean and how he did it. So, but I realized that there was a huge literature on community. Um, really by sociologists um, and even American historians, or I shouldn't say even American historians, but especially American historians in the 1970s really started uh -huh. looking at community as a way to sort of understand some of the changes um, that um, American historians were dealing with, the story of moving out west, rural versus urban areas, a loss of tradition, how do we deal with modernization? These were questions that American historians were dealing with at the time. And but what I took from it was not that aspect, but the whole idea of looking at community um, as a method, both as a way of tapping into how did how do people come together and form social groups um, from earliest times to the present? How did people articulate who they belong to or who they're affiliated with or who they are connected to? So that enables you to look at clothing, at music, at art. Mm -hmm. It enables you to look at poetry but also a text, so it enables you to be more interdisciplinary. And then also in terms of community, um, and this is what the, was um, very much part of the present, how do we explain tensions in the region? And I thought that community also explains that. So what I basically did was look at the broad history of, of the region um, from earliest times to present, looking at different communities, forms of, of social organization. What I like about it is it is very inclusive. It enables us to look at the sort of standard polities that we talk about, classical states, early modern entrepots, enables us to look at the colonial communities, but also makes us, allows us to look at the national community and beyond. But also, underneath that, what are the sub-communities, not sub-communities, but what are other types of communities that are also working in parallel to these types of major polities? And the difference that you I think You can kind of have a Venn diagram that can overlap and can move. Exactly, and can, yeah. because what we have is a, a major push to give alternatives to the nation, which is fine, because the nation and its narratives, its histories, has often left out people's voices and experiences in those national narratives, in those museums and, and exhibits and so on. Um, so a lot of us have been actually talking about the experiences of minorities, women, um, ethnic groups, and so forth, especially in the case of Myanmar history. Um, 
but at the same time, what I think we do a little bit artificially is we exclude the nation from that story as well. The, the majorities who are interacting actually in many ways with these minority groups who have their own majorities and minorities. Um, we, um, we, and so I think the space allows us to talk about people who, are, who see them, define themselves in terms of their language, their religion, their class, their occupation, where they are located, um, whether they are connected by the internet now, you know, on, on virtual communities, um, and so on. Or maybe they they connect themselves to Manchester United just because they are soccer fans, or they will always forever be uh, Northern Illinois Husky, you know, no matter where they are. You know, these types of forms of bonds um, enable us to be inclusive about the different types of people and experiences that we think of as being Southeast Asian. So my, my idea was to do this as an undergraduate class and to get Singaporean students to think about their own histories within the context of Singapore through the prism of talking about Southeast Asia. What I started realizing was you could apply this to a lot of different countries, actually, especially those that are struggling with identity, struggling over the nation, like Myanmar, 137 different ethnic groups, you know, trying to figure out how they can reconcile their... their um, um, Re not reconcile, but create a priest process for reconciliation. Um, so I was starting to think this is one way of explaining it by not taking sides and say, hey, look, the Kachin, the Shan, and so forth have different worldviews, um, different ideas about who they are, where they are, how they fit. They have different priorities. Now the question is why? And that's where you get into the history. That's where you can get into the culture. Um, as to explain why. And so this is where we get into some very old sort of questions. Well, and, al and also it doesn't, it seems like the, uh, a lot of uh, a postmodern approach might, um, or, e or even a non-state approach, uh, it, it maybe implicitly says uh, those of you who are thinking about the state, and often we, we, we're talking about Thais and Indonesians and Burmese who, who it's very important to them, right? If, you, if, you, if you're just talking to Western scholars, they're fine about... Uh, turning their backs on the state, and it, it doesn't matter, and we can, you know, the other things are more important. But it, 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 I think it, it, it does a bit of violence to things that are not only dearly held, but, but, it, yeah, it, it can leave out, um, you know, the, it's the, it's the, the kind of elephant in the room that we're not going to talk about this at all. And so it, I think it allows us to do, to do some of this, to, to look at some of the outliers that wouldn't have shown up in a traditional state-centered narrative, but, but also to not pretend that it's not a major part of it. American historians often um, were saying, you know, can't we have several parallel processes occurring at the same time? You know, was it just about a, a story of greater and greater secularization in the U.S.? Obviously, it's not true. You can see it very much now that also there's a lot of religion um, uh, very much right. part of life. And these par are parallel types of processes. And so communities and focusing on them enables us to see how these types of processes can be occurring simultaneously and not necessarily contingent upon each other. And so you can have parts, some parts of the country having some sort of uh, particular types of experiences and other country, parts of, of a country, whether it's the U.S. or whether it's Myanmar, have, having um, a, different, a different type of trajectory. But there's also connections amongst these different types of experiences. And so what it also does is it, it first is it provides us with a platform to engage, which I don't think has been very good, especially for Myanmar history. Um, but it also gives us also, I think, a method um, to sort of focus on... on um, the, t the different ways people express it um, and, the, and contest it. Um, and so I think, for instance, my, my students who have taken the class for Intro to Southeast Asian History and also Myanmar History would say, you know, the reasons why you are having a lot of these civil wars after World War II, for instance, is that many of these different groups had different experiences during the colonial period and therefore see their future in different ways. And they have different priorities, different interests, and so on. And it's the struggle to figure out which community's version is going to take hold as being the broader national community. And so this is why I think um, it may work. I'm not sure, though, you know, because there are also, as we found out in the discussion, you know, there's still things we have to, to think through, you know. Um, for instance, you know, does community mean the same thing as a category, you know? Is, um, what, what is the term for community in different places, you know? And... And you know, in Burmese, it's a see up way. You know, um, that's what community means. But was that term actually used in, in a way? You know, or was it a concept that was sort of, of uh, that was used at the time? 
th these are sort of things we need to explore and find out. Are there multiple ways of thinking about community? Um, and I think there are, you know. And so it's 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 our job as as Southeast Asianists, interdisciplinary folks, as well as historians, to perhaps find out what those experiences are, but try to find a place to weave them together. And this is the same sort of thing I was telling about Kalin before with the Seasan story, is how do we engage different historians who have different views? These are interpretive communities, right? Folks who are divided and, and, and connected to each other by certain interpretations, right? Now, these are other types of communities that we're talking about for the history. So these are the sort of things that we hope to do. As a, a question that came up in the conference was, what's your motivation for this? And I thought that was quite funny coming from an, from an activist, actually, because he probably thought that, you know, Uncle Wins are pro-state and all this other stuff. And I said, actually, it's to engage. It's, can we have an intellectual methodology that enables us to, to engage the differences and the similarities um, so that we are... Um, can get the fullest sort of understanding of the societies that we're very interested in studying. Yeah, and we look forward to um, stealing your teaching materials and, uh, <laughs> and hearing those hearing those various approaches online. Um, well, let me thank all of you for being here with us. And uh, yeah, uh, to our listeners, uh, we wish you were here. Come, uh, where, where's the Burma Conference going to be in in two years? Do we know? Is um, it's, it hasn't been decided yet, um, but normally it goes to an international site, and this is the great thing that NIU's brand name, the Center for Burma Studies, Center for Southeast Asian Studies, it goes international with these, this conference, and so we're so comfortable, we're allowed, we're, we're okay, <laughs> letting, knowing and, it'll come back to us. Yeah, and and so NIU's NIU's um, brand is known because of this conference. Uh, the center is because of this conference is goes to Asia, uh, and then also goes to Europe, and I think this time. Um, it may go to either uh, Asia or Europe, um, but we haven't heard what the what the final destination might be. But at any case, um, you know the uh, the Center for Burma Studies and this conference um, will be engaging other scholars in those particular areas. So it's a it's a we're looking forward to it too. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, Callan. Thank, thank, thank you, Maitri. Thanks. And we'll see you again. Southeast Asia Crossroads would like to thank Michael McSweeney for producing this episode and Joe Kinzer for the music. Thanks. Thanks.